0: Welcome to For the Love of Books, a podcast by North Archer Libraries. Hi everyone, welcome back to the North Archer Libraries podcast for the Love of Books. My name is Chris Wilson, the eServices librarian, and I'm very excited to bring you today's episode because today's episode features an interview with the fantastic Kirsten Innes, the author of Scabby Queen. She has taken a little bit of time to speak to us and we talked about her writing up to this point including her debut novel, Fishnet, and of course Scabby Queen, and her fourth covering book, Brickworks, which is a look at the history of the arches in Glasgow. So we hope you enjoy it, and we'll put the interview in now. So, Kirsten, thank you for coming on our podcast today. It's a great pleasure of us to have you on here. So, oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, and um, I'll give a bit of background to, uh, for our listeners in case they don't know too much about you. So you're an author of two novels now, is that right? Yeah, two novels. Yeah. And you've got a third book coming out, which isn't a fiction novel, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on as well. Um, originally, your background's in PR and journalism, and you've been nominated for various awards in Coden, and which you won the Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award in 2008. And mm-hmm. you have written for various well-known publications as well, like the Scotsman and the Herald. And you're also a former employee of the Arches in Glasgow, which is yeah. important for what we'll be talking about later on as well. So that
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: wondered why that's such an important thing to highlight at this point. Um, so. So from your background, before getting published uh as, as in PR and journalism, as I say, did writing creatively come quite naturally after that, or was that something you were always interested in? Well, it
1: was it was something I was always always doing um on the site I mean, the yeah, my my work was um well I worked for the arts so that was my first proper grown-up job kind of um and what I was doing there was um, uh writing their brochures and their website and their press releases uh, mm-hmm. and I can kind of pioneered their social media with a thing called MySpace that all the kids were mm-hmm. doing back in the day which is just putting a great big date right on my forehead right now. Yeah <laughs> I, um, I remember but...
0: MySpace.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was um, it, it's always just been words. Words have been the thing that I'm good at sometimes the only thing (laughs) that it seemed like I was good at and I'd always been writing wee stories on the side and working on ideas for novels and short stories and not showing anybody I didn't show anybody anything um, of it until I was 28 and uh, yeah so that that was and then after that it all happened quite quickly so uh, when I was 28 I won the Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award the the first the first one again putting a great big date on my head and uh, then I with that prize came sort of two thousand pounds which enabled me to take two months off work and go and stay in a pal's grandma had just died um, and left her cottage empty on Kirkwall in Orkney and I went and stayed there for two months and just it was just me and the writing to see what could come out and if I could actually make a decent go of it Uh, yeah and and it all happened quite quickly after that eventually I realized I needed to just stop being a journalist because writing full-time for a job in the daytime and writing creatively at night didn't feel compatible to me Um, but I know a lot of people who do do that very successfully so it, it was just it was just my my way of working so what I did was I went back to to arts PR and kind of put together a sort of a schedule where I could work for festivals short term and every festival I would do would create a bit of money that I could then take a couple of weeks off and just do some writing and kind of work stop start, stop start like that for for a few years I've got no idea what my my, uh, I'm now post to children and I haven't my my last book was finished before my last novel was finished before my my youngest son who's now three was born so I've got no idea what my writing life is really <laughs> like <laughs> just about to start number three but yes it's always it's always been something I answered about 10 questions there I'm so sorry, yeah, sorry. um yeah but it's, it's always been something that I've I've wanted to do and it's just been a matter of Getting my confidence up enough, I think.
0: Yeah, I can imagine take... that be quite a difficult thing for to kind of really put your. I uh, haven't worked so much on a novel and writing it. Uh, it must be quite a, a lot of um, kind of nerve wracking to kind of put that out there and kind of let people see it and things.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, I, it was. It was always something I felt I had to apologise for as well. I've only <laughs> just in the last two years. Uh, started telling taxi drivers that I am a writer when they ask me what I do, or anybody. <laughs> new mum friends at the school, it still feels a wee bit showboaty to be honest.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a great job title to be able to tell folk, fo- so- Yeah, it's
1: bo- not bad, <laughs> <do> you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now, your second novel uh, is Scabby Queen, and it uh, originally came out in the middle of two- 2020, which everyone knows was a, the year of, of the strangest years. That oh, it has ever been. It
1: that year.
0: And uh, with everything that was happening last year, did you find it quite a difficult time to release really books and promote it? Or did your PR back to help a little bit on that? Mm.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't. I'm, I'm, I'm making a point of not doing any PR for my own books or ever again. To be <laughs> honest, kind to draw a line under that. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. I can't pretend it wasn't. It didn't feel. <laughs> I, I did take the pandemic a wee bit personally at first, my, my book was <laughs> coming out in 2020 and my partner and I had sort of prepared for, it was my return back from maternity leave from basically four years of maternity leave and partner yeah. on and off. And my partner and I had kind of prepared for me to be going out and traveling. I was expecting to spend the year traveling to book festivals. <laughs> and that sort of thing and that didn't really happen and um, mm-hmm. so yeah we just had to I just had to find other ways of doing it back when I was a journalist I interviewed the the author A.L. Kennedy
0: who's mm-hmm.
1: very successful she's won the Costa Prize she's also got a stand-up comedy career she turns out novels and short story collections and she said that the only reason she still had a career was because she had to physically drive up and down the country, forcing copies of her books into people's hands um, <laughs> by which I think she meant like rather than just randoms on the street. I think she meant kind of uh, doing events with readers and getting out there and meeting readers. so I was really worried about that actually yeah. but it's, it's been it's been quite good
0: yeah it's... Like,
1: it's been it's been a totally different experience having had a book out pre pandemic as well. But I mean, I've done I've done eighty two Zoom book groups, fantastic. Which is quite nice and quite a lot of Zoom events as well. So I've mastered the art of dressing fancy from the waist up and in my pajamas. <laughs> laughing, and yeah, we all,
0: we all do it. We all do it for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been really nice, actually, especially as a mum of young of young kids. It's been really good to be able to do this from from home. I am beginning to sense the the audiences for online events dropping off a wee bit. Though, so yeah, I have to think of some other ways to, <laughs> to go about it. But yeah,
0: no, I definitely. I, I... We at a library service, we uh, kind of tried to move on to doing things online and stuff like that, and and there was a, a I do think there is a bit of a kind of a Zoom fatigue, if you like, yeah, from from in certain ways. But it was definitely kind of a good way of kind of working with what we had at the time, and and people adapted really well to kind of being able to do those kind of things and stuff. So, but yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and and another another difference that's um my first novel came out in twenty fifteen and since then the bookstagram community has kind of taken off and I think you know that just wasn't a thing before so bookstagram is is a subsection of instagram where people just talk about books and they take these amazing pictures of book covers and kind of style them and basically make them into kind of I want to say objects of lust but you know in a a non-sexual (laughs) way Well, oh, okay. Sorry, uh, that went that so, some of I'm the sure. pictures, yeah.
0: if, some of the pictures people do for B- books to grab is, is are amazing. Uh, the, the amount of effort they, they go into to kind of stage the way they kind of set them and things like I that. I know,
1: it's I know. I mean, I don't know if half these people are reading the book or not, but I was so lucky for both my hardback and my, my paperback cover to find to have a really really great designer, yeah, working who who knew how to make these books. Amazing looking and eye catching, and like people would want to Instagram them. Yeah, so yeah, sure. it's, it's been, it's, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's been pretty interesting that total shift. So this book has entirely occurred online. I've only done two live events, actually. Everything else has been within the little confines of my my laptop screen. <laughs> um, well, two live events, but um, yeah, so two of them were um, Court in Court Vale and uh, HMP Edinburgh, Salt and Women's Prisons. Mm-hmm. And then one other event in um, a uh, Gatehouse of Fleet um, for an audience of socially distanced 15. And that's been it. Everything else for this book has happened online.
0: Fantastic. And it's and, and, and it has been it, it doesn't seem to have affected the the popularity of it in any way because it's been, it has definitely been one of our, our most popular books. Um I know, for instance, it's, it's, there's a waiting list on our Borrow Box or ebook service for it, um a mile long at the moment and things. So it's definitely
1: oh, <laughs>
0: that's sure like, oh, awesome. Now let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, the main character, Cleo Campbell, is a really vivid character in the story, mm-hmm. and she touches so many people within the story, and with very different outcomes and in, in, in many many ways. Um, how did you develop her onto the page um, as a character?
1: There were there were a few things that went into Cleo. And so, I mean, I think the the first thing to say is that the the for anybody who's not read the book the story is not told by cleo ever it's told by i think 26 you know i need to i need to know how many narrators i've actually got in this book i think there's 26 (laughs) including newspaper cuttings and people who interview her along the way uh different people giving kind of their version of her from different points in their lives so because i was writing it like that and like i said i was racing with this book so i was racing my second pregnancy for most of the writing of it and uh, um, uh, the book came out two weeks before the baby <laughs> it was finished two weeks before the baby and um, so any time any idea that I had for a voice and that's usually how I start as a writer I get an idea for a voice and the character kind of forms around it mm-hmm. I could not waste time I had to work out how that person was gonna fit into Cleo's world in some way and then from there they kind of offered me another facet of what she was like but she's, she's very big, she's very charismatic, she's um, very argumentative and dazzling and probably a big pain in the bahookie as well. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, there, there were quite a few things that kind of went into her, into how I, I conceived of the idea. i had been having a conversation with people about 10 years ago now, about those sort of toxic friendships that you can have sometimes in your lives. Uh, for me, it was in my 20s, where there's the sort of person who kind of ranges through life, becomes your best friend, takes you on a whirlwind, um, has a massive fight with you, drops she moves on to the next person. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to tell the story of somebody like that from the point of view of all the people left behind, all the people she kind of leaves in her wake? So yeah. that was also part of it and i knew that i wanted her to be a political activist as well just because i was i was very interested in the position of women on the left and and kind of progressive politics following uh, the independence referendum and the brexit campaign and, and how that felt to be in this slash these countries and yeah and on top of that uh Carrie Fisher died, so 2016 was the year of all the celebrity deaths oh, yeah. uh, David Bowie you had Prince Alan Rickman and Carrie Fisher right at the end, and I have told this story a lot of times before, Chris, so sorry but she. This, this was really important for Cleo, um, so Carrie Fisher had been having this really big year because she had the new Star Wars film had come out and she was not 19 year old mm-hmm. Princess Leia and a, bikini she was 60 60 years old she was struggling to lose some weight um donald trump had just been elected and she was incredibly angry about that she was staying up late into the night screaming at people on twitter and being mocked for both of these things and then she died right at the end of that year and suddenly you could not find anybody who would say a bad word about her and suddenly it it had a real impact on me i realized why the world really likes a dead female celebrity because you can put them back in their box you know let them just be that you know one beautiful headshot that they took when they were 21 back again that, that sort of thing you know you can kind of pop a lid on them and control them they're not going to say anything silly or embarrassing or you know, embarrass you with their anger and and I thought I really want to use this somehow so the idea of making Cleo famous and she's nowhere near Carrie Fisher levels of fame she's mm-hmm. a one-hit one from the 90s but that seemed to I was just I was so fascinated by that. And I was kind of pulling together all the ideas for the book at the time. So that seemed to that was it. Oof. And I wrote the book. <laughs> <Perfect>. <laughs> so I, it just took me a year and a half. Really, it was kind of most of 2017 and half 2018 was, was the book writing in amongst pregnancy, having a toddler and a, and a job. And it was all kind of as soon as I got that Carrie Fisher thing, I kind of knew who Cleo was, and whew, we were off.
0: That's fantastic. Do you know that she can? There's there's a hint of Carrie Fisher in there over there So that's a great, <laughs> a great little insight. Um, and you, you touched on it a little bit there. I think, um, but about we discovered Cleo uh, through the relationships with others and things like that. And and I had read that you that you deliberately didn't want the readers to hear um, from Cleo directly herself. Why was it that, that was so important to you, Jane? It was just to kind of to help the, way the, the flow of the book, the, the way you wanted it to, to go.
1: Yeah, I wanted, I mean, I, I, what I hoped I was doing with the book was throwing up a lot of questions about how it all, how, do, how much do we ever really know a person? Mm. How much does one person, I kept coming back to that thing that I'm sure policeman told my class at high school once, I have no idea why there was a policeman there or why they were telling us this. It's really (laughs) stuck in my brain that if you got five people witnessing the same accident or something, the same incident in a street, all five of them would give you a completely different version of events. And it would it would always be related on what was going on in their head, whether the perpetrator looked like somebody they remembered, how they were feeling that day, what they had and hadn't noticed and how they, they wanted to fill in those gaps. So I really, I, I've always been fascinated by that and I thought it'd be really interesting to try and see how much of a character, how much of an idea of a character the readers could get, um, and me as a writer could get, when you don't direct, you don't have direct access to her voice, you've just got direct access to all the voices of the people around her, or the thoughts of the people around her. You don't have direct access to her thoughts, I should say and uh yeah because I'm just I like that sort of thing but some of my favorite bits to write in the book where when two narrators either contradict each other mm-hmm. in their of events or when you see one of the narrators who you've spent a lot of time with through the eyes of somebody new yeah they're completely not who you thought they were and I, I'm just I'm just really I really like that sort of crossover thing I've always been attracted to books with casts of narrative voices anyway rather than the, the sort of novel that's just told from one person so it all okay. just seemed to come together I guess.
0: Well, one of the one of the things that I, that I loved about that you did do because there is a lot of characters in the book and that you've got the kind of wee list of all the characters and the wee description of them at the start about what kind of, which I thought was really really good because because with some novels it can be quite difficult to remember who's who as you kind of been through, especially if they've got a lot of characters like that, and so it was, kind of, it was a kind of wee handy kind of guide to go back and just kind of get who was this again, <laughs> just um, <laughs> as it kind of clicked into the next section, so that was quite a lovely week I think you have at the start of the book as well. Uh, but without doubt though, um, Scabby Queen has caught the imagination of readers, um, and at one our great Scottish Reads poll we ran last book week scotland whenever we kind of ran a wee poll on our social media about a few we kind of highlighted a few scottish titles and we gave the um our um viewers uh, the chance to kind of vote on which one they preferred um and or which one they, they, they wanted to read and things like that from our weekend of reviews and uh, scabby queen came out on top um so what, why do you and why? Why do you think it has resonated with readers so well? Because um, it's because it, it has it has become quite a popular book, and in, in, certainly in North Arch at least.
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just because there's it's a bit like buses, isn't it? If you don't like one of the characters, you know, there's going to be another one <laughs> along, another person <point laughs> along. It. There's a there's a great big cast in there, so there's um, there's lots of different experiences. I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know I'm I'm uniquely unqualified to to answer that question because I have not read (laughs) (laughs) or not not since I've not kind of apart from as an edit I haven't sat down and kind of I can't really do that myself. One of the
0: things I would say is that that, uh, I mean like like we have said that there's lots of characters in it and but but all the characters are all really well developed and well defined and and none of them kind of are a bit kind of sort of wishy-washy, you don't really kind of get to find out too much about them. They are all quite well developed and you do kind of get a sense of, of all, all of them, who they, who they are. And and like you say, the their thoughts on Cleo are different from different point of views and things like that sort of stuff. So I, d- I, th- I think that's one of the kind of things that people like about the book is that it kind of does highlight how different people can have different views of, of different people. And depending on their own experiences of that person. So I think, to me, I think that's one of the reasons why it's quite a a popular book. Um, That
1: that means a lot, because I really, one thing I always try and do with my writing, um, every single character I write needs to feel real to me. Um, I'm not a massive fan of the kind, it's it's very easy to write a sort of a caricature, placeholder character, and, I don't know. It's always something that takes me out of a reading a book myself. If you come across a character and you're like, I think the author has just put them in there because they need them to do a particular job, and maybe they've, they've kind of sketched them out very thinly, and they're they're sort of. A, I don't know if they're a bit of a a Mickey take or something. You know, they're they're just kind of in there to be a satirical. Even even the bad guys, especially the bad guys, I need to I need them to feel like fully rounded people i think there were there were actually even more narrators <laughs> in there at first but some of them i couldn't i, I couldn't make them feel 3d enough there was mm. a, a sort of um an old uh, lord who'd owned a, a kind of an island and Cleo was going to get involved in the land reform our uh, thing against that and it was going to be his um his memoirs and i just couldn't make him sound anything other than a caricature of a upper-class toff. It, it was a bit like that Paul Whitehouse character from The Fast Show, you know, I was I, I, I drunk. And I just thought, this is this is going to pull the whole, this is going to rep the reader out of the book, to be honest, because this person is not a real person. And I can't make them feel like a real person. So they were gone. I um, <laughs>
0: they, they didn't make the cut. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so let's move on to your first novel a little bit. Um, your first novel was Fishnet, mm-hmm. um, which also won the fantastic the name the Guardian Not the Booker Prize, which I think yeah. is a fantastic name for <laughs> any prize in uh, two thousand and fifteen. It's it's not it's not a novel that plays it safe for a first novel because um, it's uh, what, what inspired the story behind the main character is they're investigating the sex industry uh, after discovering our sister has been a sex worker. Um, it, it
1: came about. From my own kind of journalism background, actually, I, yeah, I, I was, um, <clears throat> I, I'd, I'd been sent, to I was working for a magazine at the time, and they were like, right, we need to find, <clears throat> it's going to be the sex issue, we need to go off and find women who do edgy, sexy jobs, and I did a bit of Googling, and I found an Edinburgh escort who blogged. And I came back to my editor and I said, well, what about her? And they were like, oh, not, not that edgy, a bit too edgy there. <laughs> and I, but <clears throat> I couldn't get this woman's kind of voice out of my mind because her blog just kept on challenging everything I thought I knew, which was absolutely nothing at all about sex work and sex industry. And the more I began to look into it, the more I thought, and, and I'd been working on this story about two sisters for quite a while for about 10 years actually at that point, not 10 years. Um, I've I've been working on that story for quite a while anyway. And suddenly the two seem to just make sense together. Mm -hmm. So The the sister that goes missing. And yeah, it was, I did a lot of research for that one. I spoke to a lot of sex workers. The the sex workers in the book are, more or less independent escorts, but not kind of high end. It's, it's mostly kind of women who who do it, you know, within school hours while their kids are at school because a cleaning job doesn't work for them. Women who were working in the NHS and you know the the you know this this kind of thing, yeah. which reflects the real lives of the women I I spoke to. Mm-hmm. It's it's really it's not very glamorous. It's the least sensationalized version of the sex industry you might ever read. I don't know. It's it's just that 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 was that was where I was I was going with it yeah um I have I think I would it's interesting when people want to talk to me about it now because I um I I, I don't know I'm, I'm much more of a fan of Scabby Queen think going back on that book, I probably would make some changes. It, it got published in America a few years ago, and that was quite interesting because I had to do a whole translation <laughs> apart from <laughs> anything else that I had not realised I would need to do. I hadn't realised how much Scots was in there, to be honest. And it also gave me the chance to make a few changes that I think I would make now. I don't know. it's a, it's, it's an interesting one, but yeah. Yeah, that's it's scary. interesting
0: because I've I've never really had many authors kind of say about about like that. Like, yeah, I would actually like to go back and change a book, but I would mean, imagine it's something that a lot of authors do actually kind of think about something are kind of especially their kind of earlier books maybe they never quite kind of um, mm-hmm. owned or crafted as much as they would maybe want to later in their careers or whatever that kind of thing. But um, yeah, that's that's fantastic. And we're going to get to now the point as to why I highlight the fact that you are a former employee of The Arches, because mm-hmm. you've got a new book coming out on the 4th of November, is that right?
1: I do, yes.
0: And uh, it's called Brickwork, a biography of The Arches, and it is written by yourself and... Um, David, the branch piece—is that is, is that yes. right? And and it's a bit of a fond look back for you guys because because you are f- uh, former employees of the arches, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So uh, um, David is—he's uh, I think we counted it up. He's the, the third longest standing arches employee of all time. And um, so he basically was there from kind of twenty to late thirties, um, and. I I was there. I worked there for two years, uh, doing their like like you said, doing the writing, and then afterwards, I used to run a literary cabaret night there afterwards mm-hmm. as well. And yeah, it's it's telling the whole story though. It's not just our our experiences at the arches. It tells the whole story from 1990 when Glasgow's Glasgow kind of rediscovered that whole space under Central Station. Yeah, and. Uh, our former boss actually both me and David's former boss uh, Andy Arnold um, a sort of cockney punk <laughs> turned theater director sort of went in and went I I, I want to make this into a theater this is going to be my theater this is, this is where I'm going to make things <laughs> and it was stinking and dirty and they all got colds every you know they, they, they talk about how they got chest infections every winter because they were just they were in this underground awful place but eventually they realized that they could Balance it out by developing income
0: Mm. by
1: putting on club nights. Slam, who ran pressure, they they came there quite early on, and uh, Love Boutique was another one. They ran their own club night at first, and then obviously it grew into what the Arches was known for by 2015. Um, You know, sort of the the mass super club, you know, place. But it it was an amazing book to write actually because we did it all over lockdown. We did 60 interviews, most of them by Zoom some by email and we spoke to everybody from I don't know uh, from Carl Cox the DJ to you know staff who'd been involved at all levels people who'd worked behind the bar some of the cleaners the coat check boy who went on to become a, a famous playwright that makes films now that you know this sort of thing and, and it was everybody had such a, a fond everybody had fond memories but also it, taken together which we have done so we've we've written the book like an oral history so you kind of see them in Vanity Fair or Rolling Stone or whatever how we made the movie Clueless for example and it's written like a script Uh, so there's very little of mine and David's voices in there we just kind of we we wrote the introduction and we kind of guided the story put the story together from what people had said to us in interviews and yeah, so it, it's told by the people who were there, basically all the way through. And it becomes something more than just a kind of fond look back. It's it's about it's about a kind of a counterculture emerging and eventually how kind of the drive to make money and the big pressures of club land kind of eventually put paid to that. But it is, it's a, I can say this because I didn't to, do too much of the writing myself, but I think it's a really good book. <laughs>
0: My one, my I, I actually will never have I had one experience of going to the Arches, and um, it was to go and see Biffy Clyro uh-huh. um, play a gig at the Arches, and um, they and I, I was I was much younger than I was today, and um, and me and my friends went along, and we had went to, and it was we knew it was getting filmed for TV. I can't remember why, but we knew, somehow we knew it was getting filmed for TV. And and I think that me and my friends actually ruined Buffy Clyde's first ever chance to get on national TV because we had went to the the gig and we were right in the front, and we kept kind of shouting and asking them to play one of their really old original songs I didn't <laughs> actually on any of their main albums. It was like a, a kind of an EP from their kind of early days called Travis Perkins, and we and then they were followed by I think it was a I think I think Richard Holly and his Mary Main or something like that. I think they were called were on either before or after them, and whenever it came on the TV, Biffy Clyro were not on the, on the TV oh, show, no. and it was only Richard Holly. And, and I've often thought it was—is that because we basically heckled Biffy Clyro the whole time? <laughs> <disaster>. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll never know the answer to that question, but uh, but mm. I've thought it for a long time. and that's my that's my old experience so of actually being in the actors itself. Um, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a kind of really interesting venue, though. I remember mm. kind of. It's um, can there's nothing quite like it anywhere else. I don't think.
1: No, it's yeah, because it's just these great big red brick arches. I mean, working there was weird because it's underneath Central Station in Glasgow, yeah. and you just you just get used to the noise of trains rumbling overhead. So I went and did my interview, and other people say this as well. You're in yeah. you're in the book and you're sitting there doing your interview, and these trains go overhead, and you can suddenly not hear what anybody. <laughs> Interviewing USA I and mean, they seem, don't seem to have noticed it uh David and I went back down there and we did um a wee photo shoot for the book outside Midland Street which is the back entrance and the photographer got a massive fright when the train was going overhead and again both of us are so accustomed so we were like oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's just <laughs> but yeah this sort of completely cavernous dark red brick place rumbling noises coming from the ceiling it was that was amazing actually <laughs>
0: Now, to go along with the arches theme, um, I thought it might be interesting to find out what you thought would be some of the definitive additions to an arches playlist. Because I, I noticed whenever you you on Twitter, you were kind of asking about kind of getting on podcasts to kind of talk about songs and playlists and stuff. Yeah. So, so, so we'll get <laughs> incorporate that in a little bit with this part to kind of hook into your book. So, what songs do you think would help define the club and its history? Do you think?
1: Right, we actually have got a playlist, Um, I'm going to see if I can pull it up for you. Uh, We've got a playlist that um, we have called Appendix One, More Tune, Um, (laughs) which the gig goers will appreciate. So I'll see, I can pull it up and see. So, I mean, for a start, there's there's my songs about the arches that are from my time there. I mean, the the big one is um, Arab Strap, The First Big Weekend. Yeah which does actually contain the line and then on Friday night it we went through to the arches doof, 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 doof. Yeah, which, fantastic um, song, wasn't <laughs> which I, I mean I recorded that off John Peel in my bedroom in 1997 having no idea what the arches was or that that was coming to me <laughs> um but home taping is bad kids so don't do it. uh let me just see if I can find it because there's other I mean Apart from that, there's uh, Daft Punk had a massive Arches connection. on On the back of the Arches book, actually, I got invited to write the script for a Radio Four documentary about Daft Punk in Glasgow. So, what? Nobody realizes this, but Daft Punk met Slam, who ran the the Arches Friday night. um, The Arches Friday night. Club nights, and they they met them at Euro Disney. They'd heard their song "Positive Education," which would definitely be on an artist list. "Positive Education" by Slam, and they handed them a mixtape that they'd made. They were just these wee like eighteen year old boys going up to these guys after a gig. Slam took it away, listened to it, and we're like, "Oh wow, we've got to sign these people to our record label straight away." Wow. So they did, and they so they were the first people to sign Daft Punk, and they kept flying them over. On cheap flights from Paris to Glasgow, and they would crash <laughs> at people's houses. <clears throat> and so, a lot not not a lot of people know this, but for most of those early slam nights, Daft Punk were bopping away in the wow. crowd, learning how to make dance music. Fantastic. From Slam and the residents that they got on there, and uh, and then Slam so Da Funk, that you know da Funk's big breakout single, the one that yeah. just goes down, that was uh, yeah, that was that was on Slam. That was a glasgow released single, Wow. and um, yeah, so that that would definitely be there as well. And for me, the the big songs, the the club that I worked on when I was there was called Death Disco, and the big songs from that were um justice versus simeon we are your friends i'm so sorry to your listeners i'm now just singing i I cannot sing this is not good (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that that was that was a massive song from that particular club as well and then let me see if i can get any others up from our our playlist
0: so there's a playlist feature in the book itself, is it? Is yes,
1: playlist yeah. is right at the end of the book, and we're going to put it out on Spotify um, in the week that the book launches, which I think is in a week. And um, so we got a lot of the DJs who ran the big clubs to uh, to introduce it to, to us as well. Um, Billy Ray Martin, uh, Billy Ray Martin. What, what was what was her one that she? There's there's a whole story about a club night called Love Boutique. And yeah, Billy Ray Martin, your loving arms, Faithless, Insomnia, um, Arab Strap, the first big weekend, Daft Punk, Da Funk, and Massive Attack, Unfinished Sympathy. Uh, for that line, how can how can you have a day without a night? Massive Attack did a couple of really big gigs. I almost said Massive gigs uh, in in the nineties at um, at the Arches, and when the Arches was, you know, when there was a campaign to try and save the Arches, they mm. used the, the they used the line. How can you have a day without a night? to sort of try and you know that that was that was the yeah, massive attack. Let the let them use that line on the on the posters to try and save the arches. So yeah, there's there's some. Sorry, that was a bit of a I scramble. Think, no, no, that's <laughs>
0: yeah. fantastic. And some some fantastic songs in there as well. Some massive hits, which is fantastic. Um and then love we'll a little shout out to Arab Strap because they are Adam
1: yeah. uh, like Strap fan over here. <laughs>
0: Uh, let's, have we looked beyond uh, Brickwork now though, do you have any other projects in the pipeline at all and what, what does the future hold for you at the moment, do you think?
1: I am not really supposed to talk about the thing that I'm working on to do with Scabby Queen at the moment, so I won't, which is exciting. I've just actually sent, uh, I've just before I came on to chat to you, I've just sent a four-page synopsis of what I hope will be my new novel, <laughs> so um, my agents gonna, gonna send it to my publisher and see if they, they want it. Um, and that's that's quite an exciting period to be at because like I said, I mean I haven't written I, I've I've written bits and bobs, so I've written for documentaries and I've written some short stories and things, but Scabby mm-hmm. Queen came out over three, oh, Scabby Queen was finished over three years I ago, mean, it just came out last year, and I haven't really felt up to taking on a new novel till now which is quite exciting so I've, I've just I've had these new characters percolate and again there's absolutely tons of characters um but at the moment I've I've just pitched something called semi-precious which I have said is inspired by Lewis grassett Gibbon's sunset song um Aaron Tati Roy's the god of small things Jeffrey Udenity's Middlesex and Reservoir 13 by John McGregor and it's about small towns and communities and The way we hand down trauma through generations, and who gets to stay in small towns and who gets to leave, and how you form a community, and how communities kind of sustain and police themselves. So, yeah, that's that's where I'm going with that, basically.
0: Fantastic, sounds very interesting, and hopefully, in in the years to come, we might find out a bit more about that book and get a chance to read it as well. So that sounds good. Let's end things off a little bit with a book recommendation f- from yourself. So what book would you recommend to listeners that's really got you excited recently that you've been reading?
1: Um, yes, Burnt Coat by Sarah Hall.
0: I thought this um, might, be, might have been your choice because I've, I've seen you talking about that quite a, a few times Yeah,
1: yeah it, it's <laughs> phenomenal. It's short as well. I, I did not think I was ready to read books about the pandemic yet. I mean, it's not strictly about COVID-19, but, you know, it it, it kind of follows the similar pattern at first. It's about a virus called NOVA. Uh, that they call Nova at first. Uh, it's short, it's passionate. It's it, it, it felt, reading it was like a, it felt like a physical shock actually. I've, I've just, I've not been quite so moved by something in quite a while and quite so gripped and, and taken and in. It's, it's a really, really visceral book whether she's talking about, you know, the sex that these two new lovers are having. So it's a pair of new lovers who meet just before lockdown and decide to kind of lock down together and but it's kind of told in flashback when the woman who's a kind of Turner prize winning sculptor is uh, she's in she's almost 60 but she was 30 when this virus happened and so it's told in flashback and it's just it's short and wonderful and beautiful and complex and it deals with grief and you know uh, she's she's absolutely one of my favorite authors ever I wouldn't just say working today ever uh, anyway what she can do with words is kind of god they should bottle it and sell it out instead of <laughs> horses honestly um if she does not get the booker prize or the women's prize for this I I will be incredibly angry I will be taken to the streets
0: Okay. having your inner Cleo out there to, to, yeah to
1: absolutely I always <laughs> feel like I'm a bit more mild mannered more mild mannered than Cleo I did do a book group once where I turned up and they were ready to have a fight with me because they thought I was going to be Cleo um, I was like no I'm all the other characters I'm not Cleo but yeah do you know what if, if Sarah Hall's book does not get the recognition it deserves then I am 100% getting a placard and doing a march to somewhere I'm not sure where but I will march there
0: we'll, we'll um, find somewhere for you to go to it <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Kirsten, having you on the podcast um, and it's been great chatting through your own books and find out a, a good wee recommendation there and also find out a little bit more about your forthcoming book as well. So thank you for joining us and it's been a great pleasure.
1: Oh, thanks for letting me waffle on. Sorry. <laughs>
0: well, it's been a fantastic insight. So thank you very much.
1: Lovely. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for reading.
0: So there you have it guys that was our interview with Kirsten Innes. Kirsten thank you very much for taking part in the podcast it was great to get a chance to speak to you about Scabby Queen and of course talk to you about your other novel and your forthcoming book Brickworks as well. If you get a chance do check that out it sounds as if it'll be a really interesting look at the history of an iconic club in Glasgow. As for us we have got Book Week Scotland coming up soon And we have got some fantastic plans in the pipeline for that. So do check out our website at culturenl.co.uk to find out a little bit more. That's all for us for now, guys. So if you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast, do feel free to leave us some feedback using the email librarypodcast at northland.gov.uk or using the hashtag on Twitter, hashtag FLBpodcast, and you can leave us a little bit of feedback using that. That's all for us for now guys, we'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, bye for now.